0: Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. On the program today, we're going to explore a a big ongoing study, the American Families of Faith Project. This explores the nexus between religiosity and family relationships that lead to positive outcomes for families. First, some unfinished business from Thursday's program. You'll recall that we uh, took a look at Bear River Watershed Council's photo exhibit called Radiant or Ravaged. And Dan Miller, co-founder of the Bear River Watershed Council, had the idea, uh, let's encourage people to send in photos for the exhibit uh, that are not only radiant, that is, uh, exploring the beauty of the areas around us, specifically watershed and landscape, but ravaged. And so we talked about both aspects and uh, found, interestingly, in photos submitted to their uh, Facebook site and ours as well, that many photos um, have both in the same photo. One particular photograph uh, caught the attention of us and our audience, and this one probably is uh, totally under the ravaged um, category, shows a uh, trailer and in the foreground a canister, and both are bullet-written. And then there are some uh, unauthorized uh, trails up the mountainside, all of these problematic for the environment, of course. And we talked about how this uh, perhaps could give uh, target shooters a a bad name. I said on the program that uh, some perhaps would be educated by this. As to potential dangers, others wouldn't care. Scott Bolander writes on our Facebook page, The sad thing is there are a lot of us out here who do shoot, hunt, ride ATVs, etc., that care greatly for the environment. Some people see this and think anyone with a gun and an ATV are, are responsible. Uh, or irresponsible, I think he means, uh, please know that that's not the case. And he says, nice photos. We have uh, many photos on our Facebook page under Radiant or Ravaged. hope you'll uh, continue that discussion. In the meantime today, families and religious faith. Uh, the authors of the book Sacred Matters, Religion and Spirituality in Families write, scholars have been studying religion and families for over a century, but this research is still in its infancy. Well, two professors are taking this on. David Dalahite, Professor of Family Life at Brigham Young University, and Lauren Marks, Associate Professor of Family Studies at Louisiana State University, are conducting, have conducted in-depth interviews with 200 religious couples and families with children. Over the United States, interviews with Christian families, uh, many different uh, denominations, Jewish families, including Hasidic, Orthodox, Conservative, and Reformed Muslim families, including Sunni and Shia. They say a large body of social science research has found a number of correlations between religious belief and practice and a range of aspects of marriage and family life. That is marital happiness, stability, parent-child cohesion, positive youth outcomes, which what is much less known are the processes at work in this area. So the main purpose of American Families of Faith Project is to explore those processes at work at the nexus between religiosity and family relationships. We welcome in uh, David Dollahite, Professor of Family Life at Brigham Young University. Welcome to the program.
1: Thank you, Thomas. Nice to be with you.
0: Appreciate you taking the time. Lauren Marks is also with us on the telephone. Associate Professor of Family Studies at Louisiana State University. Welcome.
2: Thank you, Tom.
0: So you are one of the uh, authors of the books, uh, Sacred Matters, Religion and Spirituality in Families. And you, along with your co-authors, wrote that uh, fairly startling sentence. Uh, Religion and families have been studied for over a century, but the research is still in its infancy.
2: Yes, uh, I I think it sounds a little contradictory um, without some background. But as you mentioned before, although it's been looked at uh, for a hundred years, The examinations have lacked uh, depth. We haven't looked uh, for the hows and the whys and the processes uh, behind uh, recurring correlations that we see. Uh, For example, uh, same-faith marriages uh, seem to do much better on the whole uh, than interfaith marriages, but we know much less about why, for example, and that same kind of uh, lack of reason uh, or um, the lack of uh, information regarding the wise house and processes uh, is apparent in other connections that uh, that Dave Dahlheide and I have taken a look at as well
0: professor dahlheide i wonder if was there one i don't know aha moment impetus moment where uh, you and professor mark said we we've got to we got to study this
1: well, I'm not sure if there's any one moment, but it became apparent, um, you know, as we both were in the social sciences for a number of years and were interested in the religion-family connection, and, and saw that there had been a lot of research, but most of that research was done uh, with very large samples, with you know surveys that asked fairly superficial questions about, you know, what religion they were and how often they attended church and, you know, just sort of basic things like that. And so a lot of uh, interesting findings were popping up from many different scholars, different studies, different samples, different questions that were showing that there was uh, often a correlation between greater religiosity and a number of positive aspects of marriage and family life, and so we wanted to dig a little deeper and try to you know find out the answer to why. So I, I'm I'm not sure. Maybe Lauren, Lauren has a better memory than I do. Maybe he remembers a particular aha moment, but I just remember it kind of dawned on us over time that you know we 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 could help the field, and we could help uh, you know families and and pastors and and family life pastors to understand this uh, you know. What, these kinds of issues better if we were to go and do in-depth interviews with folks uh, from a variety of faiths. And so that's what we've been doing for the last uh, 10 or 12 years.
0: So, uh, Dr. Marks, uh, d- tell me about the, the, the overall, uh, you know, the structure of the study. Some uh, 200 religious couples and families. Um, so h- how did you select the, the families?
2: Uh, it, it's an interesting question, um, Tom. If you look at social science on the whole, a great deal of what, uh, what we typically do is uh, from a, a medical model of sorts where we're looking at things that go wrong. Uh, we look at pathology, we look at uh, divorce and mortality rates uh, and the like. And one key difference in the focus uh, for our study and the impetus behind it was to find out from strong families who are doing very well uh, why things go right. Uh, if, if we've got uh, a couple who's been happily married for, for 20 years, 25 years, 30 years, uh, why why is it that things went well for them uh, in their marriage and in their, their child rearing? Uh, and our aim was to get them uh, to ideally tell us their stories, to tell us their narratives. Uh, and, and that is a that's a very different approach than checking boxes, for example, on on demographic sheets uh, or surveys that that uh, are mailed to you. And Dave can talk a little bit about that narrative approach uh, or story based approach.
0: Yeah, it sounds interesting. You you can go much deeper with the narrative approach, I suppose.
1: Yeah, it's it's a lot of fun to sit <clears throat> sit around with uh, these uh, families of of faith, uh, and you know we, we've done so in homes and and religious. Uh, uh, structures around the country and sit for a couple or three hours and and really talk about you know from their perspectives why they believe that uh, that things have, have worked you know we, we would ask questions like you know from your perspective what are the most important ways that faith has influenced your family and are there ways that faith has made a difference in your marriage and then we would talk to the teenagers with their parents are there ways that <clears throat> how, how has your religious beliefs and practices helped you uh, in your parent child relationships or uh, to help uh, with the kids to help you know develop your sense of identity and so forth so so they would yeah. you know uh, pretty quickly they would feel comfortable um to, you know sharing their experiences their uh, you know for many people religion has a, a pretty strong experiential component to it where they feel like prayers have been answered or that, you know, there's been some some divine assistance or guidance uh, of some type in their life or they've had some kind of a challenge or struggle in their marriage and felt that, uh, you know, God helped them to turn things around. I'm just thinking of one, actually a number of couples uh, who said this, but I'm thinking of one couple in particular who were Pentecostal uh, Christian family, and they said that they were about to divorce, and someone, uh, one of their friends mentioned to them, you know, why don't you give God a chance, you know, give religion a chance in your marriage, and they decided to start attending uh, services together and start, you know, really taking their religion uh, more seriously than they had and then they described how that made a difference uh, in a number of ways. Uh, you know, it helped them uh, sort of renew their commitment to each other, helped them to resolve their conflicts uh, you know, without screaming at each other. You know, They would pray together, and they, you know, they would uh, consult with the pastor or read the Bible to try to find answers. And so you know, they, they would go into quite a bit of detail about how uh, their beliefs and practices and involvement uh, made a, a real difference. I'm thinking of one Catholic uh, father who, <clears throat> when I asked uh, the question how how has your religion helped your marriage?" He said, well, you know, the, the fact that uh, when I made my vows to my wife to be faithful to her, the fact that, uh, the, uh, that her ten brothers were standing there help, helps me uh, keep that, you know? <laughs> so, he uh, was a l- little bit kidding, but a little bit serious about how, yeah. uh, you know, th- those vows uh, still matter, even though they were made 20 years ago or whatever. And so, yeah, we heard lots of great stories of, uh, of ways that religion uh, has made a difference for people.
0: Mm. Now, Professor Marks, um there's, as as no doubt you know, there's a growing number of people who describe themselves as not pertaining to any religious faith or belief, but who describe themselves as, in general, spiritual. Do, do, do those people fit into your study? Uh,
2: the families that we interviewed, uh, you asked earlier um, about how we, how we found these families. The families that we interviewed are what might be called prototypical uh, representatives of their faith. Uh, We tended to go to clergy of uh, a mosque, a synagogue, a church, and ask uh, for referrals to individuals who uh, the the clergy saw as uh, folks that that highly valued both their family relationships uh, and their, their faith community involvement. Uh, so the, the folks who are not as involved in organized religion uh, would probably fall through the cracks uh, for, for our particular study. But I do think that there are things that we learn from the families that pertain to, to a wide array of folks uh, with a wide array of beliefs.
0: Hmm. What about, uh, just backing up a little bit from your study, um, the, the social science, what is the social science uh, telling us about those people that I referenced uh, uh, you know, re- re- uh, consider themselves spiritual, but perhaps not pertaining to any religious belief.
1: Laura, do you want to take down, or do you want me to take a shot at that one? Go ahead, Dave. Yeah, Tom, it's an interesting question, because uh, the, the media likes to play this up a lot, um, but in, in actuality, the best research finds that it's really a very small, yes, a growing, but a small proportion of Americans who describe themselves as spiritual but not religious, the vast majority of Americans describe themselves as the, that they believe in God, and uh, the, the most people who are religious describe themselves as both religious and spiritual. And then there's you know there's a group of people that are not, neither spiritual nor religious, so agnostic or atheist. The number of folks who are you know who say that they're spiritual but not religious, there certainly are uh, some folks, but there's not a, a big group of them, and and the media. And frankly, academics like to play them up a lot, because many, many academics would fall into that category themselves. Mm -hmm. Um, But we were interested in the combination of both personal, you know, spirit, obviously, you know, people that are religious uh, for the most part. Pray and have a relationship with God, and and uh, you know are involved in a faith community and have made commitments of a religious nature to uh, to live a certain standard of life, to to do certain things and not do other things. We were far more interested in the the ways that those kinds of commitments and um, you know, covenants, if you will. And involvements would impact family life because, um, it, and actually, some of the folks that we interviewed—not a large number, but a few folks that we interviewed—would uh, say, you know, when we'd call them and say, you know, your, your pastor or your rabbi or your priest or your imam I, I recommend that we might be able to chat with you, and, and they would say, really, uh, I'm not particularly religious, and you oh, know, that's okay. So, so we would, we did interview some people that that describe themselves as not particularly religious and it was interesting that those interviews tended to be quite a bit shorter i mean not surprising our focus was on how does your religion and your spirituality influence your faith and i mean your family life and folks who are not religious enough to actually be meaningfully involved in a faith community and actually you know take their religious vows seriously they don't have as much to say about how their their, uh, you know, their religion influences their family life because they're they're not particularly involved. So, you know, there there may well be other people who will focus on that particular group of people, but we focused on folks who are uh, definitely highly religious.
0: We're going to take a brief break when we come back. More on this uh, big study, ongoing study, uh, American Families of Faith Project. And We're talking with the lead investigators, uh, David Dalhite at Brigham Young University, and Lauren Marks at Louisiana State University. Uh, They're interested in the nexus between religiosity and uh, positive family outcomes. They're saying that uh, social science uh, over time has uh, shown some connections. They're interested in the why behind that, Uh, the processes. One of the interesting findings here, we'll get into some of the findings, is that it's not so much what families believe but what they do that uh, matters most. We'll talk about some of those uh, practices as we go along. And uh, we'll continue this uh, discussion. You're welcome to join the discussion. We'd love to hear about your family. What works in your family? Are you considering yourself a religious uh, family? What have you had to work through? And uh, do you think that uh, your religious beliefs uh, have helped uh, there? What do you think about this study? More following the break. What do stories tell us about who we are? We all want affirmations that our lives have meaning, and nothing does a greater affirmation than when we connect through stories. It can cross the barriers of time and allow us to experience the similarities between ourselves and through others, real and imagined. I'm Guy Raz, framing the story. That's on the next TED Radio Hour from NPR.
3: Coming up today at 10 o'clock on Utah Public Radio... Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and Cache Valley ENT and the Allergy Clinic with providers, Drs. Wood, Benyon, and Blotter and PA, Lindsay Humes, practicing ear, nose, and throat medicine allergy services and facial, plastic, and reconstructive surgery. (laughs) 753-7880.
0: Thanks for joining us for Access Utah, I'm Tom Williams. I'm talking with the uh, investigators, the authors of an ongoing study. Uh, It's called the American Families of Faith Project. And uh, I'm talking with uh, Dr. David Dallahite from Brigham Young University and Dr. Lauren Marks from Louisiana State University. They've conducted in-depth interviews with 200 religious couples and families with uh, children, nearly 500 individuals from all over the United States. 150 Christian families, including many denominations, 30 Jewish families, including Hasidic, Orthodox, Conservative, and Reformed, and 20 Muslim families, including Sunni and Shia. They're saying a large body of social science research has found a number of correlations between religious belief and practice and a range of aspects of positive outcomes for marriage and family life. Marital happiness, stability, parent-child cohesion, positive youth outcomes— What's much less known are the processes at work in this area. Why? So the main purpose of the American Families of Faith Project is to explore those processes at work at the nexus between religiosity and family relationships. Uh, So let me turn to um, some of the findings. Let me start with uh, Dr. Marks with this, one that stood out to me, not necessarily so much what families believe, but what they do that matters most. Just tell me about that.
2: Yes. uh, A lot of the social science that's taken place in the past, as Dave mentioned earlier, has focused on on belief. But uh, it's the belief in action that appears to matter most. Um, Belief that is is lived out uh, warmly and lovingly in one family can be lived out uh, in an oppressive way, uh, in a domineering way. In another context, although the the ascribed beliefs are similar, and we want to, uh, to emphasize that for many of these families that we interviewed, uh, they similarly draw an emphasis on, on the action, the living out of the belief and, and not the belief itself. Uh, Dave? Dave?
1: Yeah, you know, Tom, your uh, piece at the very beginning, you talked about the environment and the, I guess some photographs, some that showed radiant, some that showed ravaged, and uh, the the landscape of you know the nexus of faith and family is quite similar. There are certainly examples um, where the the ways that beliefs are put into practice. Uh, in a dominating, uh, sort of unequal, uh, oppressive, uh, selfish kind of a way uh, causes uh, some couples and families to be uh, ravaged. And uh, the good news is, for the most part, most people uh, who are religious uh, understand that the core of their faith tends to focus on uh, kindness and being uh, focused on others and serving others and being patient and loving and and forgiving and so forth. And so in most cases, the the radiant uh, aspects of faith tend to shine through. Uh, For example, we did a study of uh, how religion uh, helps couples avoid uh, marital conflict and then uh, deal with conflict when it's happening and then uh, kind of reconcile together uh, after an act of conflict and found that certain religious practices, you know, for example couples uh many couples will in the midst of uh of some type of a conflict an argument or, or or tension or whatever they will actually uh you know pray together or or maybe go into separate rooms and pray separately if, if they're feeling you know pretty pretty upset and and often that helps them to and then get back together, and from a a position of uh, sort of calmed, you know, more more peaceful uh, uh, mind and heart, more more uh, sort of calmed perspective, be able to work through those issues. And and uh, you know, when when and a number of the couples we interview would say things like, you know, we have the same problems that every other couple has. Just because we're religious doesn't mean we don't have problems. But they would say, you know, as we look around us and see our our friends who are divorcing. Uh, often they, they didn't quite have the resources, they didn't know what to do to deal with their conflict, and we're grateful that we have these beliefs and practices and, and uh, people and, and, and uh, you know, processes that help us to resolve our conflict so that we can uh, you know, we can keep going. Uh,
0: Professor Marks, what, what are some of the other practices that, that you're looking at? We've, we've heard about, uh, I guess, uh, prayer, about uh, trying to use religious belief to, uh, to mediate conflict among couples. What, what are the other practices you look at?
2: As you would imagine, and as you've mentioned, we've heard <clears throat> we've heard a lot about prayer, uh, about sacred practices, including family gatherings uh, that would include the the Shabbat Friday evening ritual for Jewish families, the Ramadan celebrations for Muslim families, uh, family home evening, for example, for Latter-day Saint families. But one thing that's been interesting to me across denomination is that parents repeatedly say that the most important religious practice that, that, they, uh, that they engage in uh, in connection with their children is practicing what you preach that it is the, the lived example and behavior uh, the lived invitation that we give to other people uh, through what we do that is most important uh, taking us back again to the idea that it's not just what we believe but uh, what we do uh, I, I think of a father, for example, who referred to slamming his finger in a car door while his uh, child was watching on a Sunday morning, and uh, seeing in that an opportunity either to fly off the handle and use language uh, that, that he typically wouldn't or to, to exercise some self-control uh, get things under under control in terms of his temper, and and continue off to the Sunday service as they were planning to do. In uh, in these uh, seemingly mundane stories, I, I think that there's a, a lot that's revealed about the quality uh, of the individuals. So, in terms of practice, yes, prayer is important, and studying sacred texts and doing things as families, but it it's often the way that we live. Uh, in, in the more mundane moments, that that helps faith shine through, or in, in negative ways, this has already been
0: addressed. Hmm. Professor Dahlhite, I wonder if you could expand on, give me uh, some uh, example or an example. You talked about <clears throat> some people identified as a problem, um, you know, uh, religion in family being presented in a, a domineering fashion, uh, force, that that sort of thing maybe either negative or or positive example.
1: Right. So um, a a number of, we didn't see ourselves observe a lot of examples of, you know, dominating behavior. You know, people were, the folks that we were uh, interviewing were, you know, for the most part, try hard to live their fate doesn't mean they don't lose their temper doesn't mean they don't on occasion you know act in ways that they they and their and their family members would prefer not but but you know now and then we would see some some examples of of um, moms or dads who were uh, kind of dominating their kids or who in conversation with each other you know one was dominating the other there is this uh interesting sense that a lot of people have that that uh, males, you know, religious males always dominate, religious females, but, you know, at least our observation was that that's uh, not likely, you know, there's no more likely for a male to be sort of dominant in the relationship than, than a female. Uh, and, and you know, both, what, what we enjoyed about the interviews that, that we did was, for the most part, we had couples together, and so we could, uh, you know, e- hear from each of them. Uh, what their perspective were. They would often discuss with each other, sometimes disagree. Um, now, in relation to teenagers, um, parents would sometimes talk about how they realize that in, uh, for example, we did a study on religious conversations and uh, how important it is to not just to walk the walk, but to talk the talk with your kids, and found that you know kids, not surprisingly, had certain uh, pretty strongly held uh, opinions about how their parents uh, talked with them, and if their parents were open-minded and and uh, sort of interested in what the kids were thinking, and and sort of you know letting the kids explore their questions and and doubts, and you know without uh, sort of being preachy, then then the kids found that helpful. But in many cases, the parents and the kids would describe times when the parents would become uh, you know overbearing and and preachy, and and you know sort of uh, you know. The conversation would be parent-centered rather than youth-centered, and and so that's an example of of uh, you know less than totally positive, but mo- you know most parents realize that that they uh, that they would sometimes do that, and they would try to try to be uh, oriented toward what the kids were thinking and feeling. But so you know, re- religion as itself is a, is a powerful force, uh, and and a lot of it is how people choose to. Uh, to employ that force, and do they choose to use it with uh, with concern for the other person and with patience and kindness, or uh, from a selfish perspective.
0: We're talking with um, David Dalahite, who is a professor at uh, Brigham Young University, and uh, Lauren Marks, so a professor at uh, Louisiana State University. They are running the American Families of Faith Project, it's a national research project. Uh, They've conducted in-depth interviews with some 500 individuals, 200 religious couples and families. They're uh, trying to get at the processes at work, which produce uh, good outcomes for families from religious belief and practice. A large body of social science research, they say, has found a number of correlations between religious belief and practice and a range of aspects of marriage and family life. And they're trying to get to the why, the processes. I'd love to hear about your family, your views on this study. The number is 1-800-826-1495, 1-800-826-1495. And you can join us on our email at upraxis at gmail.com, upraxis at gmail.com. Your questions and comments uh, for another 20 minutes or so, 1-800-826-1495 or upraxis at gmail.com. Uh, Dr. Marks, uh, one of the uh, other interesting findings uh, so far from the study, uh, you say you found that marriage benefits not merely from sharing the same faith, but from sharing similar levels of involvement and commitment. Uh, and I could see that uh, sort of on an intuitive basis. Uh, if you're if you're not equally committed, uh, that could cause some problems.
2: Yes, uh, and this is a, a more recently emerging finding that we've come across. Uh, we've known for quite a few years that same-faith marriages tend better, uh, tend to have a higher reported satisfaction, and to be more stable than, than interfaith marriages, uh, although as we're aware, some interfaith marriages do well. Um, but this, this new wrinkle, uh, which does make intuitive sense, I think is, is important, for uh, particularly for young people, to be aware of who are in the mate uh, selection process that uh, it's it's not simply about marrying someone of the same denomination for example but uh, that level of commitment uh, shared level of commitment what we call being equally yoked uh, tends to be very very important uh, not only is this important apparently during, uh, during the early years of marriage uh, which are a real challenge by the way uh, even for for couples in many instances that have long, satisfying marriages. Um, They report going through some growing pains early on as they move from a we, or from a me-centered mindset to a we mindset. But uh, when children begin to come into the picture, uh, religion often moves uh, even more to the foreground in a marital relationship. And uh, as, as those children... Uh, begin to come for, for couples that have a child or, or more. Having a, a shared level uh, seems to be very helpful. Uh, if the, Even if the denomination is the same, but the levels of commitment differ widely, then religion can become a divisive force rather than a unifying one. Uh,
1: Dave? I think you said it very well. It's just uh, one of those things that... Um, you know, the the research starts off kind of broad stroke, saying, you know, on average, uh, people that are of the same faith tend to be happier uh, than people of, of uh, different faiths or even of no faith. But just because you're uh, members of the same denomination doesn't necessarily mean that it's going to be smooth sailing. If uh, In some senses, if, if someone is highly religious, uh, highly religious Catholic, and the other person is a nominally religious Catholic— uh, in some ways, that's um, just as difficult as having two different faiths because one person is going to be uh, much more interested in a, in a. And we noticed some couples would talk about how sometimes tension in their marriage you know, uh, came from one person wanting to be, you know. Going every week and serving on a committee or two in the church and going maybe to a week weekday prayer service or something like that, and the other person was happy to go uh you know christmas and easter uh, and and so uh you know and and when it's just the couple that's one thing but once the kids are are involved, then there's all kinds of questions that come up about you know how what kind of a religious family are we going to be so I think Lauren said it well.
0: Professor Delhite, uh, I wonder, uh, this will be a two-part question. First of all, uh, in your findings, you say that highly religious couples, there's some evidence to say they're not following the trend. So I want to ask about the trend, first of all. Trend in the U.S. where marriage is being deinstitutionalized. Explain that to her for me.
1: Yeah, in the last oh, 30 years or 40 years even, uh, marriage has increasingly become... Uh, deinstitutionalized and uh but for uh, one of the studies we did was uh, you know married couples uh highly religious married couples tend to have more of an institutional orientation to marriage uh, more like it was for the society as, as a whole back in the you know 50s 60s um even in the 70s uh so so current highly religious families are more like Traditional American families were a few decades ago. In that, they still do. You know, because m- most religions teach that uh, marriage is ordained of God, and most of these folks, uh, all, you know, all the folks that we interviewed at least, had uh, had some type of religious marriage. And so, you know, for those who take those those vows seriously, for those who who see their their marriage um, not simply as a, a personal a uh, contract that they make between the the husband and the wife, but they see it as part of uh, you know the the broader uh, faith community that they belong to. They see it as something that God uh, has ordained and and cares about. And in many cases, these folks felt like God had some type of involvement in their uh, getting together in the first place, and that God has been involved uh, in their marriage in various ways. So so for these folks, um, um, their marriage is more institutionalized because religion is uh, remains a an important institution for those who choose to make it you know so uh, so I, I think that's uh, Lauren you probably have some other thoughts on that on that question
0: I wonder if I could follow up this way with, with, oh, sure. uh, with dr Sorry. marks um, uh, does that mean does that spill over into say extended family or or the social group or the church group the, the example dr. dallaite gave earlier where it means a little you know he, he made it Half jokingly, the the couple, the Catholic couple, who got married, that had the ten brothers there. So I wonder if that spills over not only your view that the, the God is in this marriage, but uh, the the wider community as well.
2: Yes, I I think that it can, and that's both uh, potentially positive and and potentially problematic. Uh, an interesting wrinkle, for example, is that. Uh, about 20% of the families that we interviewed uh, are immigrant families from other countries, and uh, a similar percentage—and uh, this is this is an estimate—that about 20% uh, are converts to the faith that, that they're involved in. Um, for for those who are viewing mu- uh, marriage as something sacred and. And fundamentally uh, related to God that can be a strength both to their marriage uh, and it also allows them to draw on some strength and support from within their selected faith community uh, and that can be good but the, the challenges arise when uh, for example you have a, a couple that joins uh, the Christian faith in China and moves to the U.S. and becomes involved in uh, in a Chinese Christian church, and their parents and extended family uh, remain either non-religious or committed to a different uh, religious or philosophical worldview, and uh, it can create a a kind of of, uh, barrier. So in the former example, religion becomes a bridge and a support, but in the latter one, it can create barriers and difficulties, um, and I think that in order to, to gain a full uh, a fuller understanding of how faith and families interact at that nexus, we need to pay attention to, to both the potentially positive uh, as well as the, the potentially negative or challenging aspects that come into play.
0: We have a caller, Pat in Logan. Welcome to the program. Glad you called.
4: Oh, thank you very much. Yeah, I, I've been listening with interest. Uh, I'm doing my office work here, and I, I agree that uh, with the level of faith uh, in a couple and a family. My wife and I are uh, convinced Quakers, and we were drawn to it by friends and family and our activism, which was, which was ongoing, you know, in my case since the Vietnam War, and I'd associated with you know, Quakers and Buddhists and Catholic nuns, you know, in actions over the years. And we have roughly the same amount of commitment, and our children were raised uh, with that in a balanced, healthy way. That said, if I could have the uh, time, I'll relate a very short story. I was in Hawaii, body surfing, early in the morning, Sandy Beach, and there was two big young Hawaiian men there, and we started chatting. We are the only guys surfing, you know, in the morning like that, early, and they were... uh, they were heading to Waikiki to their jobs, but they were catching in, you know, a little, catch some waves before. And I said, where are you guys from? And they go, oh, yeah, Kahuku. And that's where, the, you know, the LDS church is very strong. And I said, oh, you guys Mormon? And they started laughing. they go, oh, we're supposed to bees And I said, oh, what's it supposed to be? And they said, well, you know, the wives never like pakalolo and beer. And I realized the dichotomy there is wants a support system and a social network, whereas the men, being, you know, young Hawaiian men, of course, they, they, they enjoy partying with their friends. And I was uh, wondering if you could make a comment on that kind of uh, uh, breakdown in a, uh, uh, between uh, male and female roles. But
1: thanks a lot.
0: Thanks, thanks Pat. Very interesting. I uh, uh, wonder, Dr. Dallahide, Dr. Marks, which one wants to tackle that first?
1: Lauren, I said you're going to get all the tough questions, so I think you get you get this one. Or do you want me to go? <laughs> uh,
2: it's it's interesting in interviewing the families that we have uh, interviewed, uh, and I think the question is a is a fascinating and a very important one. That uh, that many of the the couples that I've interviewed have talked about. The fact that the first five years or so of their marriage were a difficult period uh, of time, uh, a time of maturation, a time of overcoming unselfishness, uh, both personally and, and often in connection with what uh, their respective faiths demanded of them as a as a husband or wife, uh, father or mother. Um, some of these some of these individuals talk about folks who are friends versus friends of the marriage. Uh, And uh, they talk of the struggle to leave the bachelor mindset behind uh, in the case of many of the the men uh, and to move to a place where their spouse is their primary social support, their primary relationship, instead of same-gender friendships like surfing buddies or sports buddies, or perhaps in the case of women women, shopping friends, et cetera, and that those early years in a marriage, uh, while challenging, are, are defining, um, and that uh, as we look at divorce rates, about half of the divorces that occur, and this is across marriages in the U.S., take place in the first seven years or so. Uh, and if you can make it past that first seven years, your odds of making it to the finished line are roughly 75%. Uh, so I, I think that part of the message that, that we receive from, from folks that we, that we interview are not that they were uh, faith-committed, finished products when they were married uh, initially, but that through, uh, through some process or other, they were able to, to build Uh, their marriage to a point that 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 wife or that husband was their first go-to person and the person to whom they felt the strongest commitment and allegiance and that if shared faith uh, became uh, central to that, that they had a greater chance of accomplishing that that we-centered goal instead of a me-centered goal.
1: Yeah, I, I I really enjoyed Pat's question, and uh, he reminded me of a couple of the Quaker families that I interviewed uh, uh, during my uh, my sabbatical in New England, and I was impressed with uh, a couple of things that they mentioned uh, that helped them in in their marriage. Uh, Two two sort of important aspects of uh, Society of Friends or or the Quaker faith is uh, emphasis on peace and and reconciliation and that that, those sort of broader uh, beliefs about uh, being nonviolent and and not not supporting war and so forth actually carried over into the marriages where the couple felt like they're – their religious beliefs um, help them to avoid and resolve conflict better, and then the silent worship that many Quaker um, congregations are uh, involved with—that um, sort of uh, being uh, careful about uh, just saying what you th- what you're initially thinking and you know, learning to be comfortable with silence and comfortable with using silence to uh, to seek uh... the will of god and and strength from god and help from god and so forth and the, um couple mentioned that that was helpful to them in, in their marriage that you know, sometimes as they were having challenges or issues they didn't feel like most american families uh, feel this need to sort of talk everything through, and and you know for them communication is about talking. But well, for Quaker families, there's much that can be gained uh, in silence, and that that was meaningful for them. Um, and so I, I think that uh, it's just uh, you know, Pat reminded me about those those two examples. And then you know the issue with the supposed to be, yeah, I think uh, it's it's common uh, that uh, that people uh, don't live up to their uh their values or standards or or uh, expectations and uh, most of the couples that we interviewed had been married for long enough that they had sort of worked through those kinds of issues and had had in, for the most part decided to become uh serious about their faith and and be you know be on the same page together but in, in marriages where there's you know one person kind of going through the motions and the other person's serious, uh, th- that obviously uh, sort of goes along with what we talked about, being uh, not, uh, not necessarily equally committed or, or involved, and that that, that, can, you know, that can be a
0: problem. Let me go, go first to Professor Dahlheit with this uh, question. Uh, I had been wondering, and, and uh, Pat's question sort of uh, gets in a way at this, uh, a lot of times religion and culture are, are sort of bound up one in another, and I uh, wonder how you tease out culture from religion, or religion from culture, especially with the questions that you're looking at here. And and Pat got to this, uh, you know, the, the social networks here, and probably uh, cultural, with the men, sort of in this case, pulled them away from their religion. Where the women, he thought, uh, had social networks which uh, kept them in.
1: Yeah, that's a that's a great question. Uh, yeah, culture and religion are are absolutely uh in in most cases deeply connected and, and almost all uh highly religious people uh come to realize that uh part of their a way of viewing their faith and living their faith is uh is influenced heavily by cultural things. You know, people that travel a little bit or that get to know Uh, in a congregation you get to know people from different cultural backgrounds and you're you're all trying to be, you know, good Catholics or good uh, Muslims or good Orthodox Jews or whatever, and you realize that, um, you know, how you interpret your faith uh, can can definitely be influenced by culture and that can be both, you know, positive and negative. Uh, And so, yeah, and then the whole idea of kind of male culture and female culture, yeah, there often are differences, and yes, female culture in many cases does tend to be more likely to be faith and family uh oriented uh, and male culture often tends to be more individualistic uh often more you know sort of secular uh hobby oriented or or you know work oriented or or sports oriented so yeah there is this uh this tension uh in many marriages uh with those kinds of uh cultural influences and and people having to Sort of sort through, uh, you know, who are we and and what does our faith really mean? You know, what what is the essence of our faith, and you know, can we strip away, or at least not necessarily be be unthinkingly influenced by uh, the cultural things that might uh, that might be uh, in play. Lauren, what are your thoughts?
2: In terms of religion and culture, uh, it's also interesting in terms of the tension between the two that. In many ways, what defined uh, some of these highly religious couples and families was a, a pronounced effort to avoid and eschew uh, some uh, elements of, of dominant culture. And so while in some ways they're intricately connected religion and culture, in other ways it's the avoidance or rejection of some elements of culture that uh, that defines religion. Uh, highly religious families. Uh, Again, you need both pieces of the puzzle to get a more full picture of what's taking place.
0: We just have a couple minutes left. Uh, I'm curious, uh, Dr. Marks, first to you on this one. Uh, You you interviewed many different uh, Christian denominations and uh, several different uh, strains of uh, Judaism, both Sunni and Shia Muslim families. Are, Are there... Any significant differences on the questions that you were asking between denominations or between religions?
2: Uh, a great question. And I think the, the very quick answer is that, on the whole, the questions that we asked were very similar. And uh, for, for my part, Dave will have to respond independently, but I was struck at, at the amount of overlap uh, in fact, in, in many cases, if you removed the identifying information, uh, it was difficult to tell which faith the respondents were from, because the, the core elements came up uh, again and again um, across interviews, but uh, it, it's not just the responses that struck me. This was not an academic exercise uh, only for, for Dave and for me. We. We want to come away with with information that will really be helpful to real families in in the real world. And I, I came away as uh, as a father and husband myself uh, with a desire to be better than I am. Uh, whether I was interviewing a Muslim or a, a Jewish uh, or a Christian couple, the the quality of the individuals that that uh, the faith community gatekeepers directed us to, I think offered some, some real-world wisdom, some experience, uh, some time in the trenches, so to speak, that we will likely spend the next uh, additional 10, 15 years together uh, trying to share with the general public. And I was honored to learn from
0: them. We just have about 30 seconds left. Give you the last uh, brief word, Dr. Delaheit.
1: Yeah I I had the exact same experiences uh, as Lauren um uh, the the commonalities uh, overwhelmed the differences uh, a belief in God, a focus on prayer, a commitment to a certain way of living, a a, a connection with and commitment to a faith community; uh, those were the big issues that made the big difference. Sure, there were some differences in doctrines and practices and so forth, but but the the connection, uh, the similarity across faiths was uh, was was very very powerful and very uh, uh, in, interesting and informative.
0: We've been talking with uh, David Dalahite, a professor at Brigham Young University, and. Lauren Marks, associate professor at Louisiana State University. Together, they're running the American Families of Faith Project. You can find out more about that uh, by Googling American Families of Faith Project. Thanks to both of you.
1: Thank you. Thank you, Tom.
0: And uh, join us tomorrow. We're going to be talking about families in Nepal, specifically incarcerated women in Nepal. What do you do about the uh, the families? There's an event at uh, Southern Utah University coming up. For
3: producers Katie Swain and Bennett Purser,
0: I'm Tom Williams. Thanks so much for listening today.
3: Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and the City of St. George, presenting the 35th Annual St. George Art Festival, April 18th and 19th in the Town Square in historic St. George. Information at sgartfestival.com and by Crumb Brothers Artisan Bread at 300 South and 300 West in Logan, offering breakfast Monday through Saturday beginning at 7 a.m. Featuring quiche, granola with layers of yogurt and fruit, or a ciabatta fried egg bun with bacon, avocado, and provolone. Welcome to Wild About Utah, a
0: partnership of the Bridgerland Audubon Society, USU Extension, and the Quinney College
5: of Natural Resources at Utah State University. This is Linda Kirvin for Bridgerland Audubon Society. Who has not indulged in the idle pastime of watching puffy white clouds pass overhead, naming their shapes as they form? Of course, such whimsical names do not serve comparative description and understanding. For this, a lexicon of clouds is needed. Our formal cloud classification system traces back to 1803, when an Englishman, Luke Howard, published an essay on the modifications of clouds. Luke Howard owned a profitable pharmaceutical company which funded his gentlemanly meteorological pursuits. Mr. Howard wisely chose a Latin cloud vocabulary to name and illustrate fundamental cloud types. The highest flying clouds he named cirrus, meaning curl or tuft as of hair. These wispy clouds often resemble fibers. One form is the aptly named horsetail cirrus. Composed of ice crystals, cirrus clouds form at around 30,000 feet, about the cruising altitude of passenger jets. Wispy cirrus clouds often pretend a stormy Pacific low pressure system en route to Utah. Howard dubbed a type of lower elevation cloud, cumulus, meaning mass or heap, these grow from mere puffs to big, flat bottomed clouds with white cauliflower tops. For sheer meteorological beauty, nothing beats legions of fair-weather cumulus scudding across a bluebird sky atop a montane backdrop. The lowest cloud form is stratus. Forming below 8,000 feet, they appear as an extensive deck of unbroken gray. Stratus clouds often bring Utah's winter snowstorms and spring rains. Nimbostratus are responsible for Seattle and Portland's endless winter drizzle. In contrast, our Utah summer rains fall from towering cumulonimbus thunderheads. These ominous clouds are powered by hot summer updrafts and the steamy humidity that flows northward with the North American monsoon. Luke Howard's cloud naming convention includes ten principal types in all, which easily lend themselves to naming combinations. You can now envision the height and appearance of cirrocumulus clouds, for instance. Cirrus cumulus stratus nimbus, the cloud lexicon of amateur meteorologist Luke Howard, has endured for over 200 years. Pictures of these cloud types with a link to the pages of Howard's original published treatise can be found at our Wild About Utah website. This is Linda Kervin for Bridgerland Audubon Society.
3: Wild About Utah, a partnership of the Bridgerland Audubon Society, USU Extension, and the Quinney College of Natural
0: Resources at Utah State University. For transcripts and archived audio of Wild About Utah, go online to upr.org and click on the Wild About Utah link. Support for Wild About Utah on UPR is made possible
3: in part by our listeners and the Quinney College of Natural Resources, where students and faculty promote the sustainability of ecosystems and the communities that depend
0: on them. Information at cnr.usu.edu. This is Utah Public Radio. KUSR HD1 Logan, KUSK HD1 Vernal, KUSL HD1 Richfield, KUST HD1 Moab, KCEU Price, and KUSU FM HD1 Logan.
3: This is Terry Guy,
4: Business Development Manager at UPR. We realize that you have a choice and we thank you for listening to Utah Public Radio. If you are not currently a member, please support your local public radio station. Go to upr.org for more information.